can uh, eat a peach for hours. Do you want lunch? You're A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. I can't talk too long. I gotta poo. Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! It's like looking in a mirror, only not. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the latest and long-awaited and long-overdue episode of Effin Birds Presents Travolta Cage, a podcast about the two greatest actors in movie history. I'm Clint Worthington. I'm a senior writer for Consequence and the editor-in-chief of The Spool. And my name is Nathan Rabin. Uh, I am the proprietor of Nathan Rabin's Happy Place and the author of many books, uh, most recently The Weird A Coloring to Al, a weird Al Yankovic-themed coloring book uh, that the world has been angrily crying out for and The Joy of Trash, which is coming very, very soon. Uh, Don't call it a comeback. <laughs> yes. And uh the weird coloring to Alice had a pretty decent uh premiere, hasn't it? It did, it did, it did. Uh we had a a unfortuitous turn of events. We launched it on Monday, and uh, I think about a hour and a half after we gave it the big launch, a Facebook went down uh in its entirety. <laughs> uh and it's crazy. Yeah, it took me very little time to just become a, a feverish anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. Uh it was just <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just that or so, and I was already creating no. anti-Semitic uh, propaganda about uh, Mark Cuckajew, uh, as I <laughs> like to call him, or actually Mark of the Devil, Mark of the Beast, Cuckajew. Mark of the Beast, yes. Uh, but it went very, very well, and, and, and Weird Al Yankovic, uh, he uh, promoted it via the Twitter and via the Instagram and via the Facebook, and that did great, because Weird Al has lots of fans, and they're very loyal, and they listen to him when he says that this is literally the greatest coloring book of all time. Right. Which it is, now, uh, incidentally. No, no false modesty here. Me and Felipe Zabrero have created the greatest coloring book of all time. And you can buy it uh, on my website, NathanRaven.com slash shop. Excellent. And um, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know you haven't had the chance to listen to this podcast for a while. <laughs> we released an episode like a month ago, and then we just very much took another short hiatus. We promise that is done. We are both, like, <laughs> we're, we, we've filled out, we've, I'm full, more fully settled into the house. Uh, you know, Nathan is more fully settled into his, his house and everything. So like, we're, we're set to go. We're back, baby. But uh, for those of you who are new to the podcast, and maybe this is your first episode, we're a podcast that uh, goes through the filmographies of John Travolta and Nicolas Cage in chronological order, um, because we find those two actors intensely fascinating, not just because of their in- incredible collaboration and face-off, but as, as sort of stars intertwining in their own respective orbits um, throughout the last several decades of film history. And so, yeah, we want to go through their crazy highs, their crazy lows, and just all the crazy movies they do. And uh, we are very pleased to be joined by a very special guest, uh, Preston Fossil, managing editor of Daily Grindhouse. Thank you so much, Preston, for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is actually really cool for me to be here. Uh, back in the before times, pre-COVID, uh, my wife and I used to carpool to work together because uh, my office was right around the corner from the school where she teaches. And she has to drive. She loves driving. She cannot be the passenger in a car. And so I would always ride shotgun in the morning. And to pass the time in the busy Dallas commute, we would read Nathan Rabin's Happy Place. 
that was our morning read to help get us into Dallas. And we are longtime readers, fans of the Travolta Cage Project. So to be here is a very cool and also kind of surreal experience. And thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And we couldn't have brought you on for a more apt double feature as a horror guy. <laughs> uh, we brought you on for Ridley Scott's uh, sort of whimsical con man, dramedy, matchstick men, and John Travolta's question mark uh, <laughs> a love song for bobby long the it's most... an art house movie it's yeah. art uh, no it's it's the, it's the movie most tailor-made to air on isc <laughs> it is a poem to the city of new orleans oh, oh yeah. boy and, and I, also it, the world of literature do you hate the world of literature clint <laughs> worthington worthington i say i say <laughs> I, I i wish i'd known when we started this project just how much the city of Nolans would uh, would intersect with our works because like both Travolta and Cage just have this weird pull towards this city. Well, I I think what it is, it's the uh, NCU. It's Nolans uh, Cinematic Universe. You got Zandali, you got uh, uh, Wild at Heart, uh, you have Sunny, which uh, this reminded me a lot of. Uh, Yeah, and it's one of those movies where New Orleans is not just the setting, it's a character. Uh, and in the case of a Love Song for Bobby Long, it's a terrible character that's trying way too hard. Indeed. Treme it tremaint. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry about that, everyone. But before we talk about the movies proper, I want to remind everyone we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Travolta Cage. Please send us a little buckage to, to help us keep the lights on. We try to give you bonus podcasts whenever we can. We should probably get one up soon. We should probably get one up on maybe sure. Pig. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, because we try to keep up. Because, I mean, if we if we wait till... Oh, that is act- a movie about law enforcement there, uh, Mr. Yes, Worthington. Right, yes. Ayo. Uh, ayo, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, so yeah, yeah. Please send us send us some uh, some buckaroonies over at uh, patreon.com slash Travolta Cage. Now, without further ado, uh, actually, before we do this, we something happened to you, Nathan. That uh, that uh, in between episodes, you guest starred in a Netflix special that uh, we haven't talked about at all in this podcast. Oh God, I certainly the did. Sterling attack uh, of the Hollywood cliches. Yeah, they they totally flew me out to uh, Los Angeles. First class, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. I've only flown first class twice before. There's a little name dropping here. Once was Mr. Robert Evans. Uh, <laughs> flew me out to Los Angeles to discuss his, uh, his follow-up to The Kids Chase in the Picture, The Fat Lady Sang, which you perhaps not familiar with i did not do my job very well i have to say uh and then the other time was when i uh the final episode of uh my tv show movie club with john ridley and i was like a guy can get used to this Uh, cut to it never aired again (laughs) and that was the complete end of the show but it was very exciting they they totally uh flew me out there and uh put me up in a four-star hotel I remember when I got to check in, they were like, you have $200 uh, per diem. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm living the dream. (laughs) Poor kid from the group home. Uh, So, yeah, and then they put me on the show. And uh, I said lots and lots and lots of things over the course of like a three or four hour period. And then about 30 seconds worth of them are in the show. Because they obviously brought you out there for Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Did they yeah, ask I you think, about any of the other cliches? Well, I think what happened, they asked me about all of the cliches. And I think, when, again, this is maybe just uh, complimentary to me to salvage my ego. Uh, I think what might have happened was they were almost done. 
Uh, and they're like, okay, we should do Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Like, let's get that guy. So I'm literally on there saying I invented Manic Pixie Dream Girl. It's like a male fantasy thing. And that's mm-hmm. all you see of me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm very, very grateful that they sent me out there. And uh, if you would like to fly me out to Los Angeles, uh, I'm very amenable to talking about it. Uh, yes. but, uh, but particularly silly things uh, and things that I am obsessed with, uh, like the motion pictures of John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. Now, can you get Rob Lowe on the show? <laughs> no. <laughs> can we, can we this is going to be a giant shocker, but we filmed everything separately. <laughs> uh, I did I did not get to hang out. I, I think I, I came immediately the after John Mental Samurai August. himself? I yeah. might be able to get John August on the show. Uh, but fun. Rob Lowe, I think, yeah, probably would, would, would be... Uh, well, we don't need Rob Lowe. We've got Preston here with us. Let's start with the middling one, shall we? Let's talk about a love song for Bobby Long. This is Bobby Long. You missed your mama's funeral. Who are you? No one. I just live here. Come on in. Bobby, I guess you already know what the deal is. What deal? Lorraine left the three of us the house. She did what? Hey, y'all, uh, this is Percy. Come see what Percy did. See what she didn't do. Leave. She ain't gonna leave. Whether you like it or not, I am the senior male in this house, and you will respect me. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Chief, forget there's a woman in the house. Wow. Is that a new dress? Yeah. She's got a crush. She's a kid, Bobby. She's 18. Now, do you remember your mother? Not really. I made up so many memories, I actually started to believe I was really remembering her. Freshest in your memory, uh, would you like to talk to us about the gist of a love song for Bobby Long? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, this is a motion picture that I originally uh, saw and reviewed. Everything, you know, going full circle for a movie <laughs> club with John Ridley, uh, which was the I said poorly rated, increasingly reputable uh, basic cable movie panel show that I was on in 2004 and 2005, uh, hosted by John Ridley, who would go on to win the 
Academy Award for 12 Years a Slave. One of my also panelists won the MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, and then I actually beat out Wesley Morris for the final slot, and he's won two Pulitzer Prizes. So this could have been the most distinguished, prestigious, uh, poorly rated basic cable panel show of all time. And I remember it weirdly, vividly, uh, because I think all of my memories are kind of uh, wrapped up in my memories of Movie Club. And I remember being very unimpressed uh, by John Travolta's performance, also very, very unimpressed by his Southern accent. Uh, we've seen over the course of this podcast that sometimes when John Travolta goes Southern, it's really good. And in some of his best performances and <laughs> his most memorable films, I'm thinking Primary Colors, uh, where he channeled uh, Bill Clinton in a very interesting, very compelling, uh, very complex sort of way. And then also Urban Cowboy. Uh, where he's a good old boy in a very convincing sort of way. And then there are movies yeah. like this, uh, where he sounds like he's in like a Tennessee Williams uh, movie, and he kind of sounds like he's being strangled the whole time. Uh, and it's just so over the top. So yes, this is a motion picture in which John Travolta plays Bobby Long. And Bobby Long is a legend in his own mind. And a legend in his own time, and a bit of a uh, Charles Bukowski figure, and that he is literary exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point uh, underline underline underline, and that he's just constantly dropping these literary <laughs> quotations uh, to his sidekick, who was once like a like a TA or a student or something when he was a, a very very distinguished and very popular college professor, like a big man on campus, the kind of. Uh, teacher that everybody loves and remembers and writes uh, <laughs> novels about because they're so effortly, effortlessly fascinating. And there, uh, and him and his, his sidekick, played by Gabriel Macht, uh, who I recognize from nothing else. They're kind of two versions of the same crappy person. They don't really do anything. They just kind of drink excessively and are colorful and tell stories. And he's ostensibly writing a novel about John Travolta. And again, you know, I've I've written books and, and Preston House as well. So we know how utterly insane and surreal <laughs> John Travolta's plan <laughs> is that his sidekick is going to write a literary novel about a professor and yep. that's going to make them rich enough <laughs> to live the rest of their lives in luxury. <laughs> I'm like, motherfucker, you're getting a $3,000 advance. If you sell this book, you're not going to yeah. sell it because it sounds terrible. Uh, John Travolta, he just is like, oh, I'm very... And again, it's one of those things where John Travolta, as we've again seen here, one of the most charming movie stars in the world, one of the most charismatic movie stars in the world, one of the most likable movie stars in the world. And this is a character who's kind of supposed to be obnoxious and kind of full of himself, and kind of an asshole, but also a lot of seedy charm uh, and a lot of, you know, uh, appeal. And that just doesn't happen at all. So the plot of this ridiculous motion picture is that Babylon uh, and his sidekick, uh, they move into this house after uh, a, a woman uh, of easy virtue, a woman who has a hard life, a woman who has led a colorful life. Uh, she dies, and then she leaves her uh, home to her 18-year-old daughter, who is played by Scarlett Johansson. Uh, and it's interesting that Scarlett Johansson was only 20 years old uh, when she made this, because she plays an 18-year-old and she seems about <laughs> 10 years too old uh, for that role. And then the other thing that I think 
is uh, relevant about Scarlett Johansson is she seems like an incredibly impressive human being. Uh, in every respect, she's obviously this huge sex symbol. She's obviously been a, a she can play any child star. Uh, she's she's I mean she's, she's <laughs> including yeah. every race, <laughs> every every gender. There's no thing that's offensive. So it's very weird to see her cast as somebody yeah. who has nothing going who's like attractive but like she dropped out of high school and her parents both abandoned her and she's just kind of trudging through life maybe working as a waitress and like maybe getting her GED or maybe getting her high school degree um and again it's kind of hard to buy Scarlett Johansson in that role even if you know this is kind of her story this is kind of her coming of age story and it's kind of about this person you know who has every reason in the world to not trust people and to not like people, particularly since John Travolta as Bobby Long uh, is so obnoxious to her. And he tells oh, there's this really obnoxious story of him holding mm. court in like a uh, in like a trailer park and telling a story about P-U-S-S-Y. <laughs> not that I'm a brute or anything, but I can't say it out loud. And he's just talking about it. And that's when, as a boy, I decided that that's what my life would be devoted to. And it's just sort of like, ugh, the movie thinks this is so colorful and this is so fun. And it's just for yeah. Hamlet. And I just kind of hate this character that we're supposed to feel all of this empathy for and all of this compassion. And to see, again, as kind of a great man. Uh, who kind of went to seed after something terrible happened. And there are a pair of revelations in this motion. Are they revelations if you see them coming that a mile basic- away? No, no, literally. When you're introduced <laughs> to this movie, you're like, oh, I bet Bobby Long is Scarlett Johansson's dad. Like, I bet that's the big revelation. And, and uh, like, 30 minutes, like, Gabriel Mark's like, should we tell her? Should we tell her? <laughs> should we tell her the big news that will change everything and clear a path for redemption for both you and her, leading you to both understand each other in a new way as you achieve emotional growth? Oh, God, it's so, 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 so frustrating. The other one is that Bob Long uh, endured a horrible tragedy that he really wasn't that kind of responsible for. Uh, involves the death of child uh which again as a dad is uh angers me uh because it's just about the most manipulative uh and you know sadistic and and, and kind of you know tear tear jerking a ploy you can possibly play, uh do uh so yeah so this for cockta movie is about how these uh unlikely how these you know sort of uh Outsiders living on the fringes of New Orleans society come to form an unlikely but supportive uh, family. And then, again, (laughs) I feel like I'm not giving away the twist if it's not a twist and you literally see it from the first time these characters are introduced. It's an actual family because that Bobby Long piece of crap fathered Scarlett Johansson and then he's like, peace out for the next 20 years. Uh, and then he shows up just in time to redeem himself and also die. And then one of the things that's fascinating to me is generally when we see John Travolta in a movie, particularly with a Southern accent, he's playing somebody 15 to 20 years younger than himself. And it seems very, very silly. And his uh, toupee that he uses to try and engineer uh, this fiction is very, very ridiculous. Uh, the opposite happens here where he plays a character who's 49 when he dies, but has taken such terrible care of himself that he seems to be 20 years older. 
and he has very, very white hair that along with his ridiculous foghorn leghorn accent uh, is kind of the defining characteristic of, again, a character that is way too much and embodies New Orleans in a way that's also way too much and very corny and very hackneyed. Um, and uh, yeah, it's kind of New Orleans. It's kind of like Hawaii. And there was kind of that old conventional wisdom that there are no good films made in Hawaii because everybody's having too good of a time. And they're smoking weed and they're enjoying themselves and they're hanging out at the beach and they're not particularly obsessed with making a great movie. And I feel like it's kind of a similar thing with New Orleans where it's just so colorful and vivid that you can just half-ass it and be like, look at this colorful, vivid movie we made. And it's like, yeah, you literally didn't do anything. You just exploited all of these cliches and depicted it as has been portrayed many, many times before in motion pictures such as Sunny and Zandali, uh, which are a kind of of a piece. This is not as raunchy or as lurid or as gross, uh, but it kind of has steps in that direction. You know, these are some kind of gross human beings. Uh, Bobby Long is has some gross ideas about women and relationships and life in general. And again, supposed to be kind of a guru and a man with wisdom. And I just kind of right. wanted to punch him in the face uh, from the first frame to the last. However, the one good thing about this motion picture, other than Scarlett Johansson, giving a pretty good Golden Globe nominated performance things just wanted her to show up they're like we want to look at the pretty girl uh is that it was shot by elliot davis uh who is a great cinematographer he did out of sight he did shakes the clown uh and because of that this movie looks really good even if it's two hours of a uh, complete hokum uh and my right. estimation it's um and this movie was directed written and directed by shaley gable um who is yeah shaney everybody gable, yeah. knows Dr- that claim who I think this is essentially her only feature and so I, and I have to well and I, I'm always I'm always curious about the sort of <laughs> wonders right where it's really sort of like, how did they get the job and yeah. after well this would be yeah. a one I tried wonder. to find her the bio is essentially yeah. like I used to make movies I still do sometimes but the 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 account is so inactive that definitely a bot has taken it over and now it just like retweets porn uh, so that is definitely <laughs> um, but Preston uh, I'm curious about your thoughts about a love song for Bobby Long sort of especially since we we thought we were going to talk about a different movie but then we we realigned the schedule so this you came to this like sort of late to the process before recording so what were your impressions of it did you have history with it before this um, my mom saw it when it came out and I think she might have <laughs> a DVD when I was like 16 uh, so I was like aware of this movie as a thing. It was one of the first movies that made me aware of Scarlett Johansson. And I, I completely agree with something that Nathan said. Uh, I think that it's very hard, I think, for a intelligent person to play a dumb person. Hmm. And, you know, this is supposed to be a character who's a high school dropout, who has no motivation in life, who lives day to day who has no higher intellectual pursuits than what kind of pizza she's going to have for lunch and dinner that day. But Scarlett Johansson is just such a intelligent person and projects such an intelligence that no matter how hard she tries, I just cannot buy her as essentially who's supposed to be Luann Platter from King of the Hill. And it's like, you know, she she's talking about, oh, you know, I don't got any kind of learning, Bob Long. I don't got no 
I don't got no knowledge in me. And it's like, bullshit. Yes, you do. You know exactly what the fuck this guy is talking about. And then, you know, and, and the, even in the movie almost has to admit this. It's like she spends 10 minutes with these guys and is immediately quoting like Robert, you know, Nathan, you're a writer. I'm a writer. We know other writers. This seems to be a writer character written by somebody who is not normally a writer themselves, <laughs> who does not know other writers. Writers do not just sit around having like these round tables in which they communicate only through quotations from famous literary figures. <laughs> I see the, the Star Trek stuff back there. I yes. was watching, I was watching this and I was thinking of that episode, Darmok of next generation yeah. <laughs> where it's an entirely different language essentially yes and like their entire language is metaphors pulled from this alien racist culture and it seems to be that was like what this person thinks how this person thinks writers communicate is just everything is a quotation from some Kerouac on the road exactly yeah Yeah. no no yeah (laughs) everything is declamped like nobody says anything they just announce things and they proclaim the thing and again yeah this conception of like if you're a writer a you're a hardcore alcoholic uh b you haven't held a job in about 20 years and you expect everybody in your life to provide everything for you and then c your life basically complains of quoting other Mm -hmm. writers and talking about all the writing that you're <laughs> right. doing. Uh, and he's like, I am a poet and a troubadour and a man who has a... And again, it's just... John Travolta has a weakness that we've seen over and over again over the course of this project for yes, and for being fake and for acting. And, you know, and I feel like this embodies a lot of the worst characteristics of John yeah. Travolta. Uh, and, and again, you have two very big challenging performances. And one is really masterful and nuanced. And you're like, I know this guy and I want to spend a lot of time with him. And the other is I want to punch this guy in the face, even though he's played by one of my favorite movie stars. And this movie keeps telling us that he has a lot going on. And that we should find him appealing for all of these different reasons. It's also yeah, the third act is so half-assed. And they totally just fake their way from she hates Bobby Long because he's an asshole and a jerk. And he's keeping this huge secret from her to now he knows that he's dying. And it's out that, you know, I'm his daughter and we love you. And he's going to do it with a smile on his face. And it's like, you've literally done nothing of worth for like the last 15 years. Like you are a monster. Like stop trying to get me to like this piece of crap. And again, making him Bukowski like, that's a reason to dislike it. And also like Bukowski, he was fucking prolific. Like I saw that documentary about him. And the main thing was like, this dude was blackout drunk his entire life and was like the most prolific person. He was like Tupac Shakur in that respect. I'm like, if you're going to be blackout drunk and be like, I'm the writerest writer in the world. Look at all these books I read. Uh, You know, at least, you know, um, yeah, at least have something going for you. (laughs) You know, at least have some redeeming facet, which this doesn't have, including being played by John Travolta and looking like John Travolta and talking like John Travolta. And there's even a scene where he dances (laughs) and he dances badly. In a way that is kind of not endearing. And as again, as we've seen over and over and over again in this project, like that's the most can't miss thing in the history of John Travolta movies is you have him dance, you have him sing, you put him with kids. It works every time. It does not work this time. Yeah. This for some reason I was reminded when watching this movie of the recent sort of controversy that happened on Twitter a few weeks ago around that poetry editor. 
who tweeted out about how like like mm-hmm. in in a moment of frustration but i think yeah, saying something yeah, insightful yeah. about how how um you know most poets like we think we're changing the world but we're just like writing poetry for other poets and people got mm. mad poets got mad because i for some reason there's something here about like again like sort of bukowski as like sort of romantic tragedy of the writer you know what i mean that that idea that you have to suffer and you, your, your life falls apart, but you know, it's worth it because you're going to create this beautiful, these beautiful words are going to change the world. And it feels like there is something there ostensibly about Bobby long in him destroying his life for the sake of this, like sort of sense of self-importance, but it really Mm -hmm. just plays like the, the movie doesn't, get that as well so it just is romanticizing this guy i mean in as much even even in his missteps they are tra- they're romantically tragic missteps there's this oh i you know i yeah. made these mistakes and you know that kind of stuff well and this is this is weird i, I like a couple of days ago i remember thinking about eric clapton uh as one does these days because he's <laughs> he's re-upping his awfulness uh and going out about a horrible horrible thing he's super super anti-vax now and I was thinking about the song Tears in Heaven and how people make fun of it. And I was thinking, like, as a father of a seven-year-old, you turned seven today and a three-year-old, like, that's the most horrifying thing I can possibly imagine. And I hate Eric Clapton. He's a horrible person. He's racist. He's anti-vax. He has a lot of terrible opinions. Uh, but my fucking heart goes out to him on that level because I can't imagine that kind of pain. A very similar thing happens, identical thing basically happens in this movie, and I did not feel any compassion because it was a cliche. Yeah. And because it was a plot point, and it was a way of explaining that this dude, who's the crappiest person in the world, you should actually really feel sorry for. Right. And sorry, you did not do a good job of making me feel sorry for this character, John Travolta, or the motion. Right. No. And, and, the, and the characters themselves, like, even just right down to the character names. Obviously, Bobby Long is mm, yeah, But there's, yeah. like, like her name, Scar, ScarJo's name is Perslane. Perslain Will. Perslain Will. I feel. I feel the most. Lawson Pons is the name of Gabriel, yeah. which again sounds like a sounds like a, a a condo development in 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 Georgia. Yeah, like I live at the Lawson Pons. It sounds like a Stephen uh, King Kerr novel. Unger. Yeah, yeah. Who who has like two scenes as the the hard luck waitress that Gabriel Bach could totally <laughs> live with and have sex with every night, but he's like, no, I'm sorry. I need to hang out with this pathetic alcoholic. Yeah. We, we, we have this toxic codependent <laughs> bond. <laughs> Having sex with a beautiful woman would just, you know, would just horn in on that. Um, yeah. and we've really committed to being miserable together. So yeah. appreciate the offer, but no thank you, George Yeah, There's also Hollywood's uh, hardest to work with actor Clayne Crawford in this as no, Joe's yeah, yeah. boyfriend. The lethal weapon himself, yes, right? indeed. Uh, <laughs> it turns out the weapon he's most lethal to is his career. Um, yep. But I feel the most bad for Gabriel Mocked. I feel like he's really, like, he's yeah. really trying, but he's also just super outclassed by, like, like even John Travolta's bad performance is, like, <laughs> badness. But, like, Gabriel Mocked, like, doesn't yeah. get much. To, he He's just the handsome guy. He's the handsome guy who's just sort mm. of this weird intermediary between them. He's sort of a romantic interest, but not really... Um, I kind of wish he had an inner life of his own and well, he's, he's also supposed to be a talented writer yeah. and we have no evidence of him. Being a talent. And yeah. it's one of the things where like you, you read like the excerpt from it and it's like, yeah, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> These people are not talented <laughs> I... and their delusional conception of themselves as like, you know, the, the Hemingways of, of contemporary right. New Orleans again, just, just seems. But sad. when you're a bad writer, never try to write good writers um, because then it mm. sounds like Lois Lane's, articles at the end of like Zack Snyder movies 
You know what I mean? <laughs> like the end of like Justice League or whatever, where it's like, oh, I'm going to write this like Pulitzer Prize winning article and you hear it and like, this is it. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's a weird and it's also two hours long. It's incredibly slow. Mm. I mean, I get what they're going for. They're going for the sleepy, deliberate New Orleans, like Southern Gothic kind of, you know, atmospheric. yeah, atmospheric Tennessee Williams kind of drama. But the drama's not there, and you're you're banking so much on idleness. Like even the reviews that liked it are like, it's fine when like Ebert was like, it's good to act on a simmer sometimes instead of a fast boil. But I'm like, yeah, but at some point the stew needs to be made. You know, <laughs> you got to eat it. You, you, you don't just want to eat boiled water. Yeah, you know, you want some flavor in there. You want some chicken. You want some 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 carrots and Get that bone I mean, broth. You can tell that this was a movie that was made by somebody who did not understand story structure or pacing. Like that scene that Nathan talked about before, the the scene where they're all sitting around and Bobby Long tells this, what amounts to a very kind of sexually predatory anecdote to Scarlett Johansson, who again, turns out to be his daughter. He like (laughs) makes this like very uncomfortable eye contact with her every time he says the word pussy. And it's just the nastiest, most awful scene. And I have never wanted to physically assault John Travolta so much in my <laughs> yeah. life. And it's just like, he's basically like verbally sexually assaulting this girl. And this is one of our earliest introductions to this guy. And it's like, how do you come back from this? You, How do you make this guy redeemable? And the answer ends up being you kind of don't because you drop this scene in the movie so early and it's such an intensely awful scene that you provide very little to come back from it provides an even creepier implication too because i mean just think about who bobby long is as a character and the kinds of people who who are like him where he's this very much you know he's he kind of peaked in college in a way where he peaked in his time as a college professor and if you've ever known like those cool those too cool for school english (laughs) professors who were like popular like the popular teachers at college are kind of popular for a reason and it kind of feels there's such there's such a dent of like they have weed and are willing to sleep with their exactly students. like Bobby Long definitely and, and you definitely get the like yeah there's definitely Bobby Long's deal yeah as well. yeah yeah there's definitely some statutory rape uh, accusations probably floating around him uh yeah so it's it's really really hard to like it's really even even on that level especially on that level to like really glom onto him as this and I know he's supposed to be a fuck up but like there again like. Uh, Gable's camera treats him with such like grace and like there's a strange even in the credit scene where we're just watching him like shuffle along there's a patheticness to it but there's also this like romanticism to it and it's it's so like how how are we supposed to feel about this guy I don't know well and the and the, and the way that his uh the way that his fatal illness is handled mm-hmm. as well is both incredibly cliched and yeah. incredibly predictable and it's one of those things where like the first moment that you see blood either okay. in somebody's pee or because they throw up it's like oh this motherfucker is gonna die yeah and the idea here is that like he led a horrible life but <laughs> in the last week he's like you know i'm gonna die so i love my daughter life is good i'm only gonna be drunk 23 not 24 hours out of the day mm-hmm. uh where yeah the the redemption feels like complete bullshit yeah, yeah exactly it's so like it's so limp it's just such a limp movie that it's so hard to glom onto anything in particular especially since again like scenes repeat themselves and repeat themselves so many times i couldn't handle the folksiness everybody i can't <laughs> handle that much folksiness for that long a period of time and i grew up for 18 years in downstate illinois okay uh, i grew up around cornfields well, it's it's unsurprisingly based on a novel called Off Magazine Street. Yeah, which uh, so it's a title. novel with uh, yes, with a magazine uh, in the title there. 
Uh, yeah. And again, it's one of those things that uh, tries to make you fall in love with books and makes me want to burn all of the books. <laughs> it's also one of those things that's like, let's, let's make sure that the audience is never uh, confused by having like all of the literary references be incredibly obvious. Yeah. So like the big book at the center is The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Uh, and I'm honestly a little surprised it didn't go as Vonnegut. Uh, just because he's kind of the go-to person for this character is actually very smart and cares about books. Look, they're reading Slaughterhouse now Five. Now y'all read Infinite what Non-intellectual Chest? would know about Please. a book like that, you know? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I just want to, I would have I loved it if the entire house was just packed with copies of Infinite Jest. If the house was composed <laughs> instead of bricks. It's just copies of Infinite Jest held together by the <laughs> Um that would have been great uh yeah man it's just yeah it's like you said i mean it's 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 such like english nerd 101 kind of stuff and it's very much like that white male valoration of the great men of literature that uh that we all that we all grew up like learning about but it's sort of like you, you know that bobby long didn't have a single woman or a single person of color in his like curriculum <laughs> uh like teaches about bell hooks teaches about like or you know <laughs> anybody yeah like yeah, it's just it's just such a blinkered kind of sleepy mid two thousands indie movie that's very it's very proud of itself. I feel like it, it takes mm, itself very yeah. seriously. It thinks it's saying something important, um, and even as a showcase for it. And I do think ScarJo's good. In it. I, I I wonder how much of the um, the dissonance we feel between ScarJo's sort of like sophistication as a screen presence and uh, the sort of down home sort of you know teenage dropout feel of it like for some reason that sophistication played to me a little bit more like she she has untapped potential that she's refusing mm. to call herself to um as opposed to like oh i'm going to be woken up to how much i think it's less that she's not smart and more that she doesn't see the point um mm. and so for some reason that stuff worked a little bit better to me i actually do think scarjo is pretty good in this she's definitely like holding the movie up on her tiny shoulders like <laughs> jesus like anything any pathos or any humor that is in these scenes because she is like it's much like the character like personally it has to like get these two loser men up off the <laughs> fucking couch and clean and paint the house it, it does have that parallel with the movie itself where it just feels like scarjo's holding this whole thing on her back and i i feel for her also she that she sued disney and, and hello takes some you, don't, you, you don't fuck with the the, the magic kingdom yeah yeah way. i would have preferred that she'd shown a little more solidarity towards uh the IATSE uh, union is <laughs> like if you're if you're going to stand up for like working conditions and fair compensation, it'd be a good uh, wagon to hitch yourself to. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's still like it's it's weird to be like, oh yeah, she. And it also reminds me of sort of the uh, the inevitable trajectory of movie stars now too, where it's sort of like, oh man, like th these are the kinds of movies ScarJo used to make, and now she's Black Widow forever, even after she's dead, <laughs> even from beyond the grave. She settled so they can continue working together. What's going to happen? <laughs> you know, that, that is something I at least do have to say for this movie is on paper. I see what the appeal was to everybody involved in this. Yeah. I can see the pitch, you know, on paper, this was a potentially smart, interesting, like Southern neo-Gothic, neo-Tennessee Williams kind of like involved character study. And those aren't the kind of brave in the cinematic choices that the people who made this movie, what, 17, 18 years ago are doing today with their careers. So I have at least got to give them that. Right. Well, it's, it's a small movie. Uh, it's a small crappy movie. Uh, <laughs> not, not all small movies are good. And it's not a total disaster. It is just really, really long and boring and 
Yes. And, and it has like named. a few. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do wonder what, cause this does feel like the kind of movie that you would make after like an indie movie of similar vintage would hit it big. And I guess it feels like sort of a country fied goodwill hunting a little bit hmm. where there is, at least in terms of like the, the score, the itch that it is attempting to scratch for like its audience um, where it is this sort of literary thing with an air of sophistication and that, that sort of poverty porn of like, Oh, these people have it so hard that they can climb their way out. Um, and it's going to be filmed with such like, you know, pristine gossamer sensuousness, but you know, by an indie director that, uh, that it has this air of authenticity, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. I think it never rises to <laughs> fine, but you also can't sustain fine for two entire hours. Yeah, I mean, you take 30 minutes out of this, you maybe drop that one scene, you excise some of the literary references, there's potential in this thing. It just needed more pre-production work done on it before they actually went and filmed a two-hour version of this script. Yeah. Yeah. Also, character studies work better if you don't hate the main <laughs> Yeah, Yeah, you have to invest in the character. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, all right. Well, let's leave behind Nolans and uh, and head to Matchstick Men country. Would you like to tell me what's been bothering you? No, I don't like being outdoors. Tell me you've left the house in three days. Mm. One, two, three. Have you eaten anything in three days? Mm-hmm. Besides canned tuna? Mm-mm. Anything else? Dirt. <laughs> Obviously, I have a lot of ticks. These distractions affected your work of late? What would you do if you had to change careers? What, if I wasn't an antiques broker? If you weren't a criminal. I'm Agent Kellaway. This is Agent Cole. We're from the Federal Trade Commission. You've been the victim of fraud. Do you have any more of those L-47s? Oh, yeah, maybe in the car. Oh, wait a second. Oh, here we go. This is Dr. Klein. I just got off the phone with Angela, your daughter. She says she really wants to meet you. Remember me? All of a sudden, I have a daughter. Somebody get in here. Hallelujah. You got a chick in here? It's a riot, huh? Little training bras hanging from the shower rods. <laughs> That's no way for a young lady to behave. And uh, shame on you. Just try to be as honest and open with them as possible. Right. You're a con man? A con artist. Wow. Flim flam man, mashtick man, take your pick. And that guy, Frank? He's my partner. Teach me something. Rule number one, never work near where you live. Don't. Rule number two, don't write anything down. <laughs> you regret it, exposing her to that? Well, uh, you know, it was a little, it, it made me feel a little, uh, you know, I was a little, I really liked it. How much do you think we can take that guy for? 30 grand. More. 500,000? A million? Come on, I'm 21. This 14-year-old girl working these people with me. My dad's a smooth operator. <laughs> I'm not very good at being a dad. I barely get by being me. You good to go? Is a poke poo in the woods? Just say yes, okay? There's one last thing. What? I want you to give the money back. This is so... You think crime isn't paid? No, it does. It does, just not very well. Preston, why don't you tell us about Matchstick Men? Matchstick Men is a perfectly early 2000s movie. You've got elements of neo-noir and you have got people with wacky mental illnesses being used for very... (laughs) you got that Matrix opening credits font. Yes. So (laughs) Nicolas Cage is a con man 
who is always looking for that next big score that is going to get him settled. And in the midst of his tumultuous mentor-mentee relationship with Sam Rockwell, discovers that he has actually got an illegitimate teenage daughter that he never knew about, played by Alison Lohman. And she decides that she would like to become indoctrinated into the world of exciting, deadly, sexy, high-stakes con games. And the three of them form this strange, blended family triumvirate with Nicolas Cage, his uh, rebellious daughter, and Sam Rockwell as this kind of strange uncle figure as the three of them embark on becoming the three-person con super team of Los Angeles. And there's twists and turns because this is, of course, a post-M. Night Shyamalan early 2000s movie, so we've got to have a twist ending worked in here. But uh, overall, this this is a movie that I, I have a lot of nostalgic affection for, and revisiting it found that affection still in place. It's it's actually a really solid movie, and kind of one of the last serious high profile movies of Nicolas Cage's career before he went on a downslide. It was really interesting for me to rewatch this and then go look at his filmography and see where this fell. Like I think after this, he had National Treasure, and he had The Weatherman. And then after that, it was like a Lord of War yeah. as well. He had some really interesting choices. Yeah, and then after that, and then a bunch of very not and then World choices. Trade, and then a lot of happened. desperate. And sad <laughs> and then why on earth are you in Left Behind? Is something wrong with you? Do you need a, an intervention of some yeah, sort? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is interesting to me because I feel like it's very much of a piece with uh, adaptation, uh, in part because it's really Nicolas Cage returning to the very roots of him as a hardcore method actor of like I am emoting and i'm playing a character and i'm disappearing and like every scene is my big scene and that could get very obnoxious the way it is in a love song for bobby long but never is here and it reminded me a lot of adaptation where he's also playing a guy who is uh very very good at what he does brilliant you know kind of kind of an idiot savant in a lot of ways uh and he's absolutely fantastic at his profession and an absolute disaster uh, and life. And it's kind of about him sort of learning how to escape the prison of self and how to connect with other human beings through a relationship with somebody who, you know, kind of, uh, again, connects them to all of humanity and to the part of themselves that wants to be a family and wants to love other people and wants to just not live this depressing, sad, solitary life. Uh, yeah, in both uh, cases, you know, they're Oscar-worthy acting challenges, playing two wildly different characters who look and act, who look uh, and dress exactly the same, and you never get them confused. Or here, where he's playing a character who is a con artist, and the con artist has to be in control, they have to know get everything very very straight but he also has uh, Tourette's he also has really bad OCD um, so yeah there's this kind of fascinating uh, paradox there I loved his dynamic with Sam Rockwell uh, one of my uh, only real faults with this is that I wanted it to be a half hour longer because I just love this world and I love these characters and I wanted to spend more time with them I also love con man movies and I love cons in movies and I would love to have seen just a couple of like lengthy set pieces of Sam Rockwell and uh, Nicolas Cage pulling off cons together. Right. Uh, I couldn't help but notice the eerie parallels in story between this and a love song for Bobby Long. Both are films about mm. these like 
strange, unlikely triumvirates of a father, mm, yeah, of yeah, a yeah. father daughter figure with this third uh, element, sort of much a, younger, yeah, this younger yeah. man holding up the the tripod, so to speak, um, and sort of the the relationship between the mother, the, between the father and the daughter figures, and um, sort of the ways in which they they activate each other in in certain ways. Yeah, and I, I just for some reason, I mean, I think the parallels aren't really much more superficial than that but um you know i i I think that's very very interesting and uh yeah this is actually my first time seeing it it was one of those movies i just never got around to but i love ridley scott um it's so interesting seeing his career flourish and like he's having he's making some of the best movies of his career right now in in his even in his 70s which is wild to me um like he's got two movies coming out this year i really like the last duel and uh and house of gucci is going to be incredibly long oh, wow. and incredibly ostentatious and i can't wait for every single stupid moment of it i'm, I'm gonna, gonna live and say that uh, ridley scott is a better filmmaker and storyteller than whoever directed <laughs> a love song for bobby long um but uh but yeah there is this incredible sense of momentum through it um you know it's it's interesting having seen having watched so much cage having binged so much of him like you 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 grow to be familiar with his ticks and they are very literal mm. ticks in this but it is yeah. Yeah, yeah levied by this innate tragedy that he always carries with some of these roles it's it's very leaving las vegas there is something deeply wrong with him there's like he is very rudderless in his life and mm. um you know this is also follows that early 2000s trend of having a very problematic male protagonist be paired with a psychiatrist uh it's very analyze this yeah. very that kind of stuff and even you know as and that i really i really like that relationship yeah i feel like that's there are so many like great character bruce altman uh yeah. it, it plays the psychiatrist it's really interesting uh, dynamic with nicholas cage and then yeah at the end you kind of learn yeah uh things take a turn uh <laughs> as they tend to do and and you guys can say again this is sort of I also like the love song for Bobby Long uh the uh the twist took me for a surprise the first time that I saw it like I was very very surprised and then rewatching the second time B you don't need that twist uh, in order to uh work emotionally in order to to be an entertaining movie in order to be an emotionally satisfying movie and it also like yeah it kind of makes sense in part because I feel like there are basically three plots that are reused for every con man movie and the first and most prominent of those plots is the con man gets con yeah uh and in that respect we do see a lot of the con going on in this movie it's just the mark is and is not who it is supposed to be and who we are led to believe will be the mark right and i do think it's interesting and because we usually use dancing as an indicator of quality here but uh strangely enough it's not travolta or cage that it provides the quality vis-a-vis dancing it is as always Mm -hmm. sam rockwell um, oh, and this yeah. is again, this is like an early breakout role for him. I mean, obviously he'd done several, many roles before this, but this felt like, like he he's getting he was getting such runway to do his thing to to per, to parlay those those eerie like likable charms that uh, again you kind of need to play a con man character like um, oh, yeah. That stuff is really, really endearing, and I love his dynamic with Nick Cage, where he understands and respects his uh, his his sort of seniority in the game and his mastery of the game, and is also like very sympathetic towards his his ticks and everything. He's he he puts off all the performances of a very supportive friend, which when what happens happens, um, it becomes even more of a gut punch because he has also conned the audience as well. Yeah, and that's the thing is I feel like there's such a heaviness to Nicolas Cage's performance where this character is, you know, a man of constant sorrow. Like he has so much darkness and, and you know, his relationship with, you know, the, the woman who's the uh, mother of who he thinks is his child, you know, like it, it 
ended very badly. It's it's Melora Walters, who again, there are all these great character actors who don't have a, a lot of screen time, but create really, really indelible, unforgettable characters. Uh, Bruce McGill, uh, dependable, you know, always plays kind of stocky, uh, malevolent authority figures. He's kind of the mark, the big mark in this one, and this is definitely one of his best performances. Alison Lohman is fantastic. I kind of felt like watching this movie, like, especially with the end, like, oh my God, this woman is headed for great things because she's so fantastic. And she looks just like Nicolas Cage. I mean, there are scenes of like the two of them, like in profiles, like, yeah, this is definitely somebody who could be his daughter. And it's not just that, you know, they look alike, they have this great dynamic and he finds, you know, that he loves being a dad and he loves responsibility and he has like a reason to live and a reason to, and, and, and again, there's, there's just this sweetness to Nicolas Cage. And I feel like this is kind of the, the, the big kickoff of the Nicolas Cage dad movies because it's about learning how to be a dad and it's about the joy of being a dad and the confusion about how even when everything takes a turn like he decides this is what I want most in the world like I can redeem myself by becoming a dad and by embracing responsibilities and by not just living this life that is devoted to because that's the thing is like there's a sense of you see his home and it's great great set design but there's nothing in it it's sparkling it's it's clear and it's kind of like his life and his mind is like i've emptied out everything except for the con and even then it's not enough you know? like that scene early on where he like gets into that that compulsion to obsessively mm. clean his house like that's very frenzied and uh and even then even then through all that innate darkness there is this incredible lightness this fleet-footedness to mm. the script and to the performances like i think i remember reading that like apparently the novel on which it's based is far more cynical than the mm. the ultimate sentimental nature of this of this movie so yeah, even yeah, with yeah. all of cage's darkness like it does play you know not as not as quirky per se but there is there is sort of a, a, a i don't know a charm to to all of that stuff and especially when he starts to really glom onto allison loman's character and they, they start to band together well, it's about somebody who wants to be better, and that ring is completely true yeah. and organic, as opposed to a love song for Robbie Long, where it's just like, you need this, you need a redemptive arc for this half-ass thing yeah. to be a movie, whereas here, it totally works within the context of the script. Yeah, that's right. something, yeah, it's, it's really startling watching them back-to-back, because everything that Bobby Long does wrong in terms of the dynamic of the father and daughter and the way that the father's more problematic tendencies are portrayed, Matchstick Man does completely right. It's like maybe Nicolas Cage's character in this isn't the best of people and maybe he's kind of a bad guy at the beginning, but he's not so awful that you don't want to see him redeemed. And then mm -hmm. that dynamic works organically where you are cheering for him to, to see this guy come through as a better person and he's also questioning unlike bobby long he's he's questioning his livelihood right bobby long is worships of the altar of steinbeck he, he <laughs> values and worships the supremacy of the written english word and wants to be a part of that whereas with all the conman stuff like especially in the scenes with his therapist with bruce altman's character there are these um incredible scenes where he's pushing him he's pushing nick cage to like sort of recognize that so many of his neuroses are tied to the guilt he feels over conning these people and i think that's a cool thing about this being a con like a, a, a heist movie of sorts is that this isn't oceans 11 right we're not punching up we're not taking down the it was except uh, for the it, it was Hill, written, of written by the it was written by the screenwriter yeah exactly uh, of, of oceans 11 right. also the tower heist so he's oh. a guy who yeah obviously has thought a lot about this and again right. it's, it's a really really good really clever a very very 
zippy script. Right. And of course, you know, there's Bruce McGill's character who it's, it's easy to root against. But um, apart from that, we see them, like, especially when we're introduced to their con, they're just conning these old people into giving mm. them money. And like, the, it, it's a very, it's, it's, it straddles all these different lines. And one of my favorite scenes is, uh, is where he's teaching Allison Lohman how to con using that sort of laundry like that lottery heist, that, that lottery yeah, con yeah, yeah. with Beth Grant, whom uh, Nick Cage would co-star in Willy's Wonderland with. Uh, yeah. So yeah, she seemed very familiar. I was like, oh, that's one of those character actors. Oh yeah, Beth, no, Beth, Beth Grant Margo, is Margot Martindale type. Yeah, uh, Beth yeah. Grant is incredible, and she she has looked fifty years old her entire life, and uh, <laughs> she will for the next two hundred years of her life. Uh, but she's phenomenal, and uh, I just I love that scene together because it also shows those first glimmers of of fatherhood's effect on cage's own convictions as a, as a con man where he's like, Oh no, you're going to give this back. Like, you know, I showed you how to do it, but we're not going to con this poor woman. Yeah. And I also liked how kind of penny ante a lot of the cons were. I mean, they kind of established it sort of because Nicholas Cage has a small, clean life that he can just barely sort of subsist. He doesn't want to do ambitious stuff. He doesn't want to do that might get him busted, that might get him caught, that might go sideways. So he does these kind of sad, grubby, desperate little, I mean, there's things like selling people water purifiers uh, that they don't need. And again, they sort of talks too about kind of the essence of the con is everybody that you con kind of wants to get conned. And if there's no greed, there's no avarice, then there's no con, you know? And and with with with, with our hero, uh, what he wants, again, is his greed is to find a purpose in life and, and to find a sense of connection. And that's, uh, again, I think one of the things that, that, that's kind of compelling about this is that he kind of has pure intentions, sort of. He has kind of this air of nobility about him. And when things take a turn, you know, that I think kind of saves him because he sees like, I can, I can save myself and I can be a better person and I can be the person that I want to be and the person that I should be. And I'm not locked in just stealing money from sad people and doing, living this life that I just barely can, 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 can abide by. Exactly. And in, in that way, I kind of feel like that final twist, which, you know, it's a, 20 year old movie and we spoil movies all the time it, it turns out that sam rockwell's playing a long con on nick cage and and um angela the the daughter character is just a random girl who like is also playing that con with her which is also why she took to the con artist game so well mm. um it reminds me it almost feels like by the end of the movie nick cage isn't so much conned as he is incepted where uh <laughs> where like, you know what i mean like where they they perform this heist on him that ends up doing him a lot of good uh, yeah, because he has to lose it's everything. almost it's almost it's almost like the game. You know, yeah, choose the game is <laughs> getting screwed getting... over and robbed yeah. and eluded by like people you trust. Like that's what you need to like be self self real. Yeah, right. You know, that's what that's that one step you need is you need like weirdos to to, to manipulate you uh, <laughs> and to lie to you and to deceive you in order to get to the place. It's a very wholesome message. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, and then it leads to that like wonderful sort of bittersweet final scene where. Like they run into each other again after after that and it's sort of like he lets her go because you know they, that bond is still there for whatever reason and also because he is now sort of you know he's got he's taken steps towards emotional calm and like a more stable life as like a, again like carpet salesman you know like 
<laughs> I don't know. I love that. But married and, and and has a child. Yeah, exactly. Like he's yeah, and Sheila Kelly from from uh, L.A. Law. Like again, a neat little small performance as the woman, the beautiful woman, uh, at the grocery store yeah. who kind of you know uh, promises the possibility of a different kind of life and a more honest and more satisfying. Yeah, and uh, and Angela's uh, boyfriend in the in the epilogue is played by Fran Kranz, who is uh, yeah, 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 the TV of, set, yeah, the TV set, and Dollhouse, and he just uh, wrote and directed a movie called Mass that I rather enjoyed. That's a very sort of stagey, but uh, but compelling sort of forehander about a uh no no yeah there's just there's such specificity and like there's such a fun quirk to it all like i mean we're so used to han zimmer scores sounding the same now but like his score here is so jaunty and uh and playful that i'm like oh i miss this han zimmer i don't know well i think that's one of the things that works about this is that it's a very sunny noir yeah uh, you don't necessarily see that. It's a very Los Angeles noir, and it makes very, very good use of Los Angeles. Uh, and I feel like there are a lot of cliches that come with con artist movies and with neo-noirs, and it indulges in some of those cliches. There's also a lot of jump cuts uh, to sort of indicate the jittery nature of Nicolas Cage's mind. But yeah, I felt like the style wasn't overbearing, and it really worked for the film, and it looks good, and it moves really really well and again when your big complaint is i wanted this to be a half hour longer oh and it, the movies are both two hours long and when i'm like this should be a half hour longer and the other like this <laughs> yeah. should be a half hour more like a love song for bobby way too long yeah Ooh, for sure. god help me um but i think this also speaks ultimately between both movies to what happens when both of these stars are given very tick heavy roles to play and what each character, what, what each actor does with them, and I think it speaks to that overall thesis we've been building towards. In that, like Cage is an actor and Travolta is a movie star, and whenever movie star Travolta tries to take on these challenging roles, he's not exactly up to the task. At least not without like a phalanx of like incredible artists around him. Whereas Cage can take someone, can take a character who could could have so easily fallen into cliche and character and you know especially given you know early 2000s we were playing with a lot with like mental illness in and that was always it was the big like you know acting challenge that was the oscar bait thing that you would do is play someone with mental illness or some sort of mental challenge and um and managing to imbue a kind of fragility and a humanity and like a very a, a very relatable frustration i think he feels very frustrated at all times that these ticks are happening and that he's succumbing to these things and he's always just like frazzled in an incredible way in a w- but also keeping him deeply human whereas like yeah travolta is just this weird wizened um you know just mentor figure who's meant to die I mean, I, I do have to give a compliment to that. It's fascinating to me that there was like this weird mental illness vogue there in the early 2000s where all of a sudden mm-hmm. it was like cool and like sexy for your main characters to have mental illnesses. And I think maybe as good as it gets is what kicked that off. And I think it was Forrest Gump, maybe. Like maybe as far back as Forrest Gump. <laughs> I, I'm thinking more specifically kind of like the like OCD thing. Oh, like, yeah, really, yeah, yeah. So you had like Monk and you had this and you had as good as it gets and... And as somebody who has OCD and Tourette's, it was interesting for me to watch this movie. And I was at least very impressed with them and I have to give them the kudos that they didn't give him like profanity Tourette's with and give mm. this idea that like everybody who has Tourette's swears nonstop. So I was at least impressed that for a movie of this vintage that they did a little bit more homework than the average filmmaker and giving him a more realistic version of Tourette's, which was something that I appreciated. 
Yeah, it feels like Tourette's in cinema, especially at that time, was mostly an excuse to get away with the transgressiveness of like, oh, someone's saying swears in public in a socially acceptable way, and which is insulting to everyone involved. So yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Well, and stylistically, I feel like one of the choices that the screenwriters and uh, Ridley Scott make is to tell the story from Nicolas Cage's perspective. So it's a very, very subjective. We kind of see everything from his perspective. Uh, and that really works out uh, because we kind of get conned uh, alongside our hero. Uh, and then also, you know, it's not like a love song. My language, you know, uh, uh, adopts this, you know, eye of God perspective that just seems friggin' insufferable. Uh, whereas here, again, we get deep inside Nicolas Cage's head. We get deep inside his skin. And it's a very interesting place to be and a place that I enjoyed being for two hours. And like I said, again, I, I could, you know, I wanted more of this world, you know, like I'd love it if this was like, you know, like a, like a Netflix TV show. Like I feel like there's just so much more potential. And this realizes that, and again, it, just, it feels very, uh, it feels very tight. You know, it feels like every scene has a point. Every scene moves the uh, story forward. Every scene, you know, sort of uh, better establishes these characters. Uh, so, yeah, this is one of the many very, very good motion pictures uh, that Nicolas Cage has made over the course of his career. You know, that's a, that's a really fascinating observation about kind of seeing the world through his view, because, you know, that, that throws the, the sort of look of the movie into a new light for me, because something that struck me was whenever we're in his house, it's very soothing and dimly lit and calm, and it's almost looks like it's shot through a blue filter, not quite that it's very heavy on the blues. And then when we're mm-hmm. outside his home, the rest of the movie has this very kind of washed out, like 1980s Miami Vice sun-drenched feel to it that's kind of sunny but sad at the same time. And it almost has this yeah, lonesome yeah. quality to it. And it's a cool idea that we're kind of seeing the world through his perspective where in this environment he controls things are more soothing and outside of it they're a bit more wistful and mournful and sad that's yeah, the sun's almost like look. blown out in in scenes outside yeah where it's almost it's very oppressive yeah all right well uh i think uh it's probably about time to move to our final segment which is cage match which is uh where <laughs> you listener correctly guess which movie we're going to say is the better of the two <laughs> Preston, let's start with you. Between Love Song for Bobby Long and Matchstick Men, which would you say is the, the more uh, successful attempt at cinematic art? Well, I would have to say against expectations that it is oh, wow. <laughs> early 2000s on bullshit. It's Matchstick Men. Matchstick Men by a mile. <laughs> yeah. uh, Nathan, what about you? Uh, I also, I really enjoyed watching Magic Man. I could totally watch it two or three more times. I love wrong for Bobby Long. I'm like, oh, I had the exact same response I did the first time around, which is, this is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and I love you, John Travolta. I do not love you in this motion picture. Yeah, we are definitely at the stage of this podcast project where, like, the Cage is definitely going to win out, even when he makes, like, magic <laughs> crazy stuff, because at least it's better than, like, red box action movie du jour. Um, yeah, sorry, John. Yeah. Um, I think I'm, I'm even, like, slightly more positive on bobby long just because it didn't like it didn't piss me off but it's also <laughs> very much like it, it feels like i said it's it's that kind of indie movie that we got in the 2000s that feel like a dime a dozen where it was just mm-hmm. we were just discovering how easy it was to make low budget movies with like big stars who wanted more cachet and uh, and to make sundance yeah, movies, sundance movies. Yeah. it's very it's a very sundance movie and so yeah i mean i'm gonna have to give it to the the playful ambitious fun 
exciting, energetic, magic men. <laughs> um, a movie created by one of uh, our greatest living filmmakers um, <laughs> than Love Song for Bobby Long. Um, so congratulations, Nick Cage. You did it again. Uh, uh, Matchstick Men moves on to whatever Fakakta second round we make it, <laughs> make after we like finally catch up to their filmography. Preston, thank you so much for joining us. This was an absolute blast to have you on the show. It was. Thank you for having me. I had an absolute great time. Is there anything you'd like to plug or do you want to tell people where they can find your stuff? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Preston Fossil, uh, P-R-E-S-T-O-N-F-A-S-S-E-L. Uh, my uh, latest two projects are a, a novella called The Despicable Fantasies of Quentin Surgenov. Uh, just look up Despicable Fantasies because I was an idiot who gave my main character a weird last name and then put it in the title. Uh, it is a uh, horror comedy novella that is my ode to the John Waters movies that I uh, watched in college. It's a... Uh, sci-fi horror comedy about a 90s era pro wrestler who is outed and then blacklisted and then is turned into a dinosaur by a cabal of mad scientists and <laughs> that old story yeah then... yeah so it's so it's a so it's a it's it's realism is what you're yeah. saying oh it's yeah a, yeah a, <laughs> so you're saying it's non-fiction, non-fiction. <laughs> total verisimilitude total good, verisimilitude good great i'm glad i'm glad i could be immersed in a world that is exactly like my own well i look forward to reading that um well, that 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 about wraps it up. Oh God, I turned to Bobby Long for a second. That about wraps it up for this here episode. I'm just a simple country podcaster. That, that wraps it up for this episode of Evan Birds Presents Travolta Cage. Uh, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your podcast platform may be. Wherever that is, please rate and review us. It helps us out a ton. Uh, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Travolta Cage. You can find me on Twitter at Clint Worthing. Nathan's on Twitter at Nathan Rabin. You can find show notes and uh, write-ups uh, of each of these films via the Travolta Cage Project at NathanRabin.com. If you want to support us, please pledge to the Patreon at Patreon.com slash Travolta Cage. Thanks so much for listening. Now, if you'll excuse me, I got a poo.